You're listening to Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. Thank you for choosing to listen to our podcast. We are grateful for your time and attention. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. Please become part of the growing Return of the Birds flock. Join our mailing list at returnofthebirds.com for exclusive early updates and access to our upcoming book projects. We don't spam because no one has time or patience for spam. Return of the Birds email will be worth your while. I want to give a special thank you to the women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I licensed and used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. It's appreciated. Thanks. Chapter 7. The Bluebird When nature made the bluebird, she wished to appropriate both the sky and the earth, so she gave him the color of one on his back and the hue of the other on his breast, and ordained that his appearance in spring would denote that strife and war between these two elements was at an end. He is the peace harbinger. In him the celestial and terrestrial strike hands and are fast friends. He means the furrow, and he means the warmth. He means all the soft, wooing influences of spring on the one hand, and the retreating footsteps of winter on the other. It is sure to be a bright March morning when you first hear his note, and it is as if the milder influences up above had found a voice and let a word fall upon your ear, so tender it is, and so prophetic, a hope tinged with a regret. Bermuda, 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 he seems to say, as if both invoking and lamenting, and behold, Bermuda follows close. Though the little pilgrim may be only repeating the tradition of his race, himself having come only from Florida, the Carolinas, or even from Virginia, where he has found his Bermuda on some broad, shiny hillside thickly studded with cedars and persimmon trees. In New York, and in New England, the sap starts up in the sugar maple the very day the bluebird arrives, and the sugar-making begins forthwith. The bird is generally a mere disembodied voice, a rumor in the air for two or three days before it takes visible shape before you. The males are the pioneers, and come several days in advance of the females. By the time both are here and the pair have begun to prospect for a place to nest, sugar-making is over and the last vestige of snow has disappeared and the plow is brightening its mold board in the new furrow. The bluebird enjoys the preeminence of being the first bit of color that cheers our northern landscape. The other birds that arrive about the same time 
The sparrow, the robin, the phoebe bird, are clad in neutral tints, gray, brown, or russet. But the bluebird brings one of the primary hues and is the divinest of them all. This bird also has the distinction of answering very nearly to the robin redbreast of English memory and was by the early settlers of New England christened the Blue Robin. It is a size or two larger, and the ruddy hue of its breast does not verge so nearly on an orange, but the manners and habits of the two birds are very much alike. Our bird has the softer voice, but the English redbreast is much more the skilled musician. He has indeed a fine animated warble heard nearly through the year about English gardens and along the old hedgerows that is quite beyond the compass of our bird's instrument. On the other hand, our bird is associated with the spring as the British species cannot be, being a winter resident also, while the brighter sun and sky of the New World have given him a coat that far surpasses that of his transatlantic cousin. It is worthy of remark that among British birds there is no blue bird. The cerulean tint seems much rarer among the feathered tribes there than here. On this continent, there are at least three species of the common bluebird, while in all our woods there is the blue jay and the indigo bird, the latter so intensely blue as to fully justify its name. There is also the blue grosbeak, not much behind the indigo bird in intensity of color, and among our warblers, the blue tint is very common. It is interesting to know that the bluebird is not confined to any one section of the country, and that when one goes west, he will still have his favorite with him, though a little changed in voice and color, just enough to give variety without marring the identity. The western bluebird is considered a distinct species, and is perhaps a little more brilliant and showy than its eastern brother, and Nuttall thinks its song is more varied, sweet, and tender. Its color approaches to ultramarine, while it has a sash of chestnut red across its shoulders, all the effects, I suspect, of that wonderful air and sky of California, and of those great western plains, or, if one goes a little higher up into the mountainous regions of the west, he finds the arctic bluebird, the ruddy brown on the breast, changed to a greenish blue, and the wings no longer pointed, in other respects not differing much from our species. The bluebird usually builds its nest in a hole or stump or stub, or in an old cavity excavated by a woodpecker, when such can be had. But its first impulse seems to be to start in the world in much more style, and the happy pair makes a great show of house hunting about the farm buildings, now half persuaded to appropriate a dovecote, then discussing in a lively manner a last year's swallow's nest, or proclaiming with much flourish and flutter that they have taken the wren's house, or the tenement of the purple martin till finally nature becomes too urgent when all this pretty make-believe ceases and most of them settle back upon the old family stumps and knot-holes in remote fields and go to work in earnest. In such situations, the female is easily captured by approaching very stealthily and covering the entrance to the nest. The bird seldom makes any effort to escape, seeing how hopeless the case is, and keeps her place on the nest till she feels your hand closing around her. I have looked down into the cavity and seen the poor thing palpitating with fear and looking up with distended eyes, but never moving, till I had withdrawn a few paces. Then she rushes out with a cry that brings the male on the scene in a hurry.
He warbles and lifts his wings beseechingly, but shows no anger or disposition to scold and complain like most birds. Indeed, this bird seems incapable of uttering a harsh note or of doing a spiteful, ill-tempered thing. The ground builders all have some art or device to decoy one away from the nest, affecting lameness, a crippled wing, or a broken back, promising an easy capture if pursued. The tree builders depend upon concealing the nest or placing it beyond reach, but the bluebird has no art either way, and its nest is easily found. About the only enemies the sitting bird or the nest is in danger of are snakes and squirrels. I knew of a farm boy who was in the habit of putting his hand down into a bluebird's nest and taking out the old bird whenever he came that way. One day he put his hand in and, feeling something peculiar, withdrew it hastily when it was instantly followed by the head and neck of an enormous black snake. The boy took to his heels and the snake gave chase, pressing him close till a plowman nearby came to the rescue with his ox whip. There never was a happier or more devoted husband than the male bluebird is, but among nearly all our familiar birds, the serious cares of life seem to devolve almost entirely upon the female. The male is hilarious and demonstrative, the female serious and anxious about her charge. The male is the attendant of the female, following her wherever she goes. He never leads, never directs, but only seconds and applauds. If his life is all poetry and romance, hers is all business and prose. She has no pleasure but her duty, and no duty but to look after her nest and brood. She shows no affection for the male, no pleasure in his society. She only tolerates him as a necessary evil and, if he is killed, goes in quest of another in the most business-like manner as he would go for the plumber or the glazer. In most cases, the male is the ornamental partner in the firm and contributes little of the working capital. There seems to be more equality of the sexes among the woodpeckers, wrens, and swallows. While the contrast is greatest and perhaps in the bobolink family, the female fleeing with all her speed and the male pursuing with equal precipitation. And were it not for the broods of young birds that appear, it would be hard to believe that the intercourse ever ripened into anything more intimate. With the bluebirds, the male is useful as well as ornamental. He is the gay champion and escort of the female at all times. And while she is sitting, he feeds her regularly. It is very pretty to watch them building their nest. The male is very active in hunting out a place and exploring the boxes and cavities, but seems to have no choice in the matter and is anxious only to please and encourage his mate, who has the practical turn and knows what will do and what will not. After she has suited herself, he applauds her immensely, and away the two go in quest of material for the nest, the male acting as guard and flying above and in advance of the female. She brings all the material and does all the work of building, he looking on and encouraging her with gesture and song. He acts also as inspector of her work, but I fear is a very partial one. She enters the nest with her bit of dry grass or straw, and having adjusted it to her notion, withdraws and waits nearby while he goes in and looks it over. On coming out, he exclaims very plainly, Excellent, excellent. And away the two go again for more material. The bluebirds 
when they build about the farm buildings, sometimes come in conflict with the swallows. The past season, I knew a pair to take forcible possession of the domicile of a pair of the latter, the cliff species that now stick their nests under the eaves of the barn. The bluebirds had been broken up in a little birdhouse nearby, by the rats, or perhaps a weasel, and being no doubt in a bad humor, and the season being well advanced, they made forcible entrance into the dobe tenement of their neighbors and held possession of it for some days, but I believe finally withdrew rather than live amid such squeaky, noisy colony. I have heard that these swallows, when ejected from their homes in that way by the Phoebe bird, have been known to fall and mason up the entrance to the nest while their enemy was inside of it, thus having a revenge as complete and cruel as anything in human annals. The bluebirds and the house wrens more frequently come into collision. A few years ago, I put up a little birdhouse at the back end of my garden for the accommodation of the wrens, and every season a pair have taken up their abode there. One spring, a pair of bluebirds looked into the tenement and lingered about several days, leading me to hope that they would conclude to occupy it. But they finally went away, and later in the season the wrens appeared, and, after a little coquetting, were regularly installed in their old quarters and were as happy as only wrens can be. One of our younger poets, Myron Benton, saw a little bird, quote, ruffled with whirlwind of his ecstasies, end quote, which must have been the wren, as I know of no other bird that so throbs and palpitates with music as this little vagabond. And the pair I speak of seem exceptionally happy, and the male had the small tornado of song in his crop that kept him ruffled every moment of the day. But before their honeymoon was over, the bluebirds returned. I knew something was wrong before I was up in the morning. Instead of that voluble, gushing song outside the window, I heard the wrens scolding and crying at a fearful rate, and on going out, saw the bluebirds in possession of the box. The poor wrens were in despair. They wrung their hands and tore their hair after the wren fashion, but chiefly did they rattle out their disgust and wrath at the intruders. I have no doubt, if it could have been interpreted, it would have proven the rankest and most voluble Billingsgate ever uttered. For the wren is saucy, and he has a tongue in his head that can outwag any other tongue known to me. The bluebird said nothing, but the male kept an eye on Mr. Wren, and, when he came too near, gave chase, driving him to cover under the fence or under a rubbish heap or other object where the wren could scold and rattle away, while his pursuer sat on the fence or the pea-brush, waiting for him to reappear. Days passed, and the usurpers prospered and the outcasts were wretched, but the latter lingered about, watching and abusing their enemies, and hoping, no doubt, that things would take a turn, as they presently did. The outraged wrens were fully avenged. The mother bluebird had laid her full complement of eggs and was beginning to set, when one day, as her mate was perched above her on the barn, along came a boy with one of those wicked elastic slings and cut him down with a pebble. There he lay, like a bit of sky fallen upon the grass. The widowed bird seemed to understand what had happened, and without much ado disappeared next day in quest of another mate. How she contrived to make her wants known, without trumpeting about them, I am unable to say, but I presume the bird's have a way of advertising that answers the purpose well. Maybe she trusted to fall in with some stray bachelor or bereaved male who would undertake to console a widow of one day's standing. 
I will say in passing that there are no bachelors from choice among the birds. They are all rejected suitors, while old maids are entirely unknown. There is a jack to every jill, and some to boot. The males, being more exposed by their song and plumage, and by being the pioneers in migrating, seem to be slightly in excess lest the supply fall short, and hence it sometimes happens that few are bachelors per force. There are not females enough to go around, but before the season is over, there are sure to be some vacancies in the marital ranks, which they are called on to fill. In the meantime, the wrens were beside themselves with delight. They fairly screamed with joy. If the male was before, quote, ruffled with whirlwind of his ecstasies, end quote, he was now in danger of being rent asunder. He inflated his throat and caroled as Wren never caroled before, and the female, too, how she cackled and darted about. How busy they both were. Rushing into the nest, they hustled those eggs out in less than a minute, Wren time. They carried in new material, and by the third day were fairly installed again in their old quarters. But, on the third day, so rapidly are these little dramas played, the female bluebird reappeared with another mate. Ah, how the wren stock went down then. What dismay and despair filled again those little breasts. It was pitiful. They did not scold as before, but after a day or two withdrew from the garden, dumb with grief, and gave up the struggle. The bluebird, finding her eggs gone and her nest changed, seemed suddenly seized with alarm and shunned the box, or else, finding she had less need for another husband than she thought, repented her rashness and wanted to dissolve the compact. But the happy bridegroom would not take the hint and exerted all his eloquence to comfort and reassure her. He was fresh and fond, and until this bereaved female found him, I'm sure his suit had not prospered that season. He thought the box just the thing, and that there was no need of alarm, and spent days in trying to persuade the female back. Seeing he could not be a stepfather to a family, he was quite willing to assume a nearer relation. He hovered about the box, he went in and out, he called, he warbled, he entreated. The female would respond occasionally, and even peep into the nest, but would not enter it, and quickly flew away again. Her mate would reluctantly follow, but he was soon back, uttering the most confident and cheering calls. If she did not come, he would perch above the nest and sound his loudest notes over and over again, looking in every direction of his mate and beckoning with every motion. But she responded less and less frequently. Some days I would see him only, but finally he gave it up. The pair disappeared, and the box remained deserted the rest of the summer. 1867 You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic.
This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.